We are continuing our series on prayer with an oft-neglected spiritual discipline, and that is of fasting. And I, I just, I, my prayer is that this has been an encouragement to you, this series on prayer, that you have uh, found yourself praying more, you found yourself uh, going to the throne of grace more frequently than you did before, and maybe even uh, learning how to pray a little better. And so that's my, my prayer today, is that with, with the topic is about fasting, that this would be a practical thing for you and that you would be encouraged by it and not discouraged by it and that you would receive this uh, as good news, as, as a joy, a, a thing that the Lord has given us as another gift, another spiritual discipline. Last week we talked briefly about the covenants and I tried to convey just the importance of understanding what a covenant is as it relates to how God relates to us. And part of the difficulty, I confess, was that that word covenant is not, you know, thrown about in our day and age very frequently. So it's kind of a difficult topic to address. Well, what about fasting? With this, we have the opposite problem that we had last week. Because if you Google the word fasting, you get literally one billion search results. And the top 100 are mostly about health. It has nothing to do with spiritual fasting. It's all about intermittent fasting or, or health issues. A Ligonier article I, re- I read states this. It says, There are books, studies, TED Talks on the advantages of giving up food for a time. People at your gym are most likely fasting more than people in your congregation. The North American church has largely lost the practice of fasting. And while health gurus advocate fasting for physical benefits... Christians need to recover fasting for spiritual purposes. So that's my goal today is that, that I would, we'd be able to, through the word, just impress upon all of us here that maybe we should start developing the spiritual discipline as a community, as a group. By my count, there are 77 biblical references to fasting in both the Old and the New Testament. Jesus starts his ministry in Matthew 4 with a 40-day fast in the wilderness As he takes the place of disobedient Israel and he does combat with the devil who comes to him, tempting him with what? Bread, with food. In Acts 14, 23, prayer and fasting were included in the appointing of elders. So they fasted and prayed before they sought who was going to be an elder. Moses fasted at Sinai for 40 days. Jehoshaphat, the king, Esther, the queen, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of these fasted in their greatest times of need as they called upon the Lord. They had some sort of distress, some sort of deep need, and so they poured themselves out before God in prayer and fasting. Seeking to highlight just the benefits of fasting, John Calvin wrote, It's a holy exercise, both for the humbling of men and for our confession of humility. And the Puritans loved it. The Puritans loved to fast. They they would call corporate fasts. They would do so often. And then all of a sudden, it's like fasting was forgotten. It's like it just disappeared. There's an author, Richard Foster, and he found that from 1861 to 1954, not one single book was published on fasting for almost 100 years. That's pretty remarkable. Almost 100 years of nobody talking about this, nobody writing about it. Now, why do you think that is? I think John Wesley sort of got at it. John Wesley observed that some have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason. 
And yet others have utterly disregarded it. And so they sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater. They said, well, it can't be done right. It can't be done correctly. People are abusing it. So let's just get rid of it. And the result of the famine of teaching, the writing, the preaching on the subject has made way for health gurus, for everyone else to take up the subject themselves. And so we have one billion search results and very few of them are about spiritual fasting. One such idea is that fasting uh, was only for Bible times. You, you might say, well, that's just for religious zealots. That's for the Gandhis of the world to go fasting. But as we're going to see today from the text, Jesus himself fasted and he assumed that we would fast as well. He assumed it. So here's what we're going to try to do today. We're first going to look at a theology of food. What does the Bible say about food? Secondly, what is, what is a theology of fasting? How do we fast? What do we do? What's the point of it? And then finally, we're going to look at emptying ourselves in order to be filled with the love of God, with Christ himself. So I want you to read along with me, if you will. Uh, we have two just quick little passages, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then just jump it down here. Matthew nine fourteen through 17. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray. Jesus, would you be with us today as we talk about sort of a difficult topic? Uh, Fasting can be, it can expose us, and it can expose idols in our hearts. And so I ask that this would be an encouragement today, Lord, that this would be good news to us and not bad news to discourage us. Jesus, would you make it so? We pray this in your name. Amen. If I had to ask you the the painful question, what's your relationship to food like? You don't have to be an expert to realize that something's gone horribly wrong with food in the world. We have people in this world called foodies, and I consider myself a foodie. And I am encouraged by blogs and vlogs and and food apps and recipes and Yelp reviews. And the Yelp reviews say, if you want the best burrito in town, go here. If you want the best Cuban sandwich, go to the Marathon gas station out on the beach. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the best one in town. They tell you where to go. And then on the other hand, we have the keto diet and veganism and carnivore and paleo, Weight Watchers, Nutrisystem, Atkins, South Beach, Something called the cookie diet, which is where you, I kid you not, you eat a cookie for every meal and that you'll lose weight because you're just eating a cookie. All right. So that's something we could maybe all get, get around, you know. And so we have this, this fight between us. We have food on one hand being celebrated and then some people punish their bodies because they eat too much and too often. 
And then we have to abstain from food through endless diets because we've punished our bodies too much too often. And then the world, we go to the world, we Google fasting, we Google diets, we Google health stuff. And it doesn't help us because one day eggs are bad and hot dogs will kill you. And then the next day, eggs are the only thing that will save your life. And ESPN has Joey Chestnut eating 16, 17 hot dogs for a contest, you know, and he's a hero. And so we're confused. There's so much confusion around food and, and is it bad? Is it good? Good cars, bad, all this stuff. And so something is wrong. Even here, sin has tainted this. As with most things, we have to go back to Eden. We have to constantly go back to Eden. We're constantly going back to Genesis. Because we find in the beginning that food is a gift. God, God gives us this gift of food. It's not a curse. In Genesis 1.29, God says, Every seed-bearing plant, every fruit tree, that's yours. Eat it up. Take it. All except one. And then after the flood, God looks at Noah in Genesis 9. He says, everything that lives and moves, you can now eat. Have that as food as well. God gave us plants. And then the meat lovers, he expands the menu. Praise God. He gives us seed and soil and sun and rain and animals that we might eat, live, celebrate, and work. And he made our bodies in such a way that we delight in food and drink. It's a good thing. Again, it's not a curse. It's, it's a good part of the original created order. Adam and Eve were born with taste buds. And so I will praise the Lord for taste buds before meals. He didn't have to give us that. But he gave us taste buds because he's a good father. He's a good Lord. He's a good creator. And despite the chaos and the disorder and the confusion around food caused by sin, so much of God's good gifts in food and drink still remain. Listen to Proverbs 16, 26. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. I love that. Your stomach means you've got to get up and work. When it grumbles, it's time to, go, time to go cook, time to go work, time to go make money. And so that's a good thing. God gives us hunger even as a gift. Even our rumbling bellies is a gift that causes us to work. Now, after the fall, food comes to us through hard work. Through the sweat of our brows, we will eat. And we battle with weeds and wild animals and locusts and insects and droughts and wildfires, depending on where you live. But God, even in, his, even in this, he restrains the chaos. Through common grace, he makes it rain on the just and the unjust alike. And he does this so that we might eat and live and rejoice in him. Rejoice in the creator. He cares about us. He cares about our bellies. He cares about our nourishment. So much so that scripture encourages us as little Christ, little Christians to feed others. Go follow the example of Jesus. Go, go feed others. He fed 5,000 at one point, 4,000 at another. Romans 12, Paul tells us, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. <laughs> feed them. Give them food to eat. Food's a gift, and God wants us to celebrate and enjoy it. We know this in the Old Testament, God establishes six feast days. Six feast days for Israel. And the whole point is that they're supposed to come together and remember and feast and celebrate God's grace, His mercy, 
the things he has done for them in history. Next week, we're going to get together and feast after service. We're going to eat together as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's good. And so as believers, we are called to take this food and drink and then be sober-minded, to be self-controlled in all things. Now, how do we do this? (laughs) The easy answer is that we have to live by the Spirit. We have to live by the Spirit. In all things, we have to glorify God. So whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we must give glory to God. That's, That's grace from Him. We have to ask for His grace, His help, His mercy, even in that. And practically speaking, it means we have to have a biblical understanding. We need to toss out the confusion and we need to hear what God's word says about food rather than what the world says. Now, the first thing we see is that the Bible consistently says, if you have a lot, if God has given you plenty, you should thank God, be content and then share it. Enjoy it and share it with others. The parable of the rich fool. You remember the parable? He stores it up. He's got the silo and he says, I'm, I'm going to be fat and happy. I'm going to sit back, relax and retire. And God says, no, you're not. In fact, today your life's required of you and you can't take it with you. You cannot take your grain with you. Secondly, we have to learn contentment in all things, which is very difficult. First Timothy six, six through eight. Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. You see, food and clothing, a lot of people are not content with just that. And due to sin, we will suffer from lack of things. And then we will have an abundance of things and both can be slippery slopes. And so we can suffer and we can say, Lord, why have you not given me more? Why have you not given me more? And then we can be like Job's wife and we'll say, we should just curse God and die. There's nothing for me in this world. I cannot, God won't give me anything good. And then we can have too much and we can have an abundance of so much good stuff, so many good gifts that we're tempted to forget God entirely, which is what we see in the Bible all the time. When Israel is, is fat and happy, they forget the Lord and they chase after false idols. And when they're hurting, when they're in trouble, They either run to to God and call out for him or they fall into despair. And so what I want to what I want us to see today is spiritual fasting is not really about measuring your waistline. It's about measuring your heart. How fat and gluttonous is your heart? How emaciated and sick and cold is your heart towards God? For out of the abundance, Jesus says, of the heart, the mouth will speak. And so some live to eat, others eat to live. And our mastery over our bodies, if we're being honest, is is oftentimes a train wreck. We even eat when we aren't hungry. Because for many of us, it gives us peace. Why do you think we call it comfort food? All of us self-medicate. We all of us self-medicate. We do it with Big Macs, with TV, with alcohol, drugs, sex, wealth. And sadly, for so many, food has become their source of joy at the end of a long day. Their pleasure in life is to go home and have a couple drinks, and that'll get them through to the next day. And there's a word for all of this 
And it's called idolatry. And all of our hearts, as Calvin says, are little factories, little idol factories that pump them out. They churn out little idols. I read a story about a woman whose idol of choice was a plate of cookies. Listen to what she says. She says, a plate of cookies put out in public place after lunch positively torments me. I'm not hungry. I do not need a cookie, but I cannot bear the thought of someone else eating that cookie. So I walk past it. Then I think about it and I come back and eat it because I'm afraid someone else will take it and I won't get to taste that cookie. Now that's about food. But what I'm trying to get at is that the same principle applies to all of our desires. A man who struggles with alcohol drives past the bar a thousand times before he pulls into the parking lot and he gives in. The woman who knows she doesn't need another pair of shoes to make her happy. She's just window shopping and then all of a sudden she's got bags in her hands. The teenager is on the internet and he stumbles upon something he shouldn't have. And now sinful desires inflamed and fed. And we can put anything here. Sports fanatics, hoarders, addicts, whatever it is that you simply could not go a day or a week without. That is deadly for you. And, I, and I'm preaching on it because the Bible thinks that your soul is so precious. <laughs> that you are so precious to the Lord. That, that God loves you too much to leave you in that false worship. This must be mastered. All these idols have to be put under the feet of Christ. In the words of John Owen, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us how can we win the battle how can we possibly win the battle against the flesh you know with man this is impossible but with god all things are possible we must look to jesus so that's what we're going to do jesus it was popular that's to put it lightly during his day he was extremely popular he was invited to feasts and parties and we know that he ate and drank at those parties because people accused him of being a drunk and a glutton He liked food. He knew we liked food. That's why he made us the way he did. He fed 5,000. He fed 4,000. He enjoyed the food himself. But what we see in the scriptures is that he was never, ever not in control. He was in complete and total mastery of his own desires. You'll remember the disciples come to him. They urge him to eat. Rabbi, would you eat something, please? And what does he say? I have food to eat that you do not know about. And that food is to do the will of his father. After 40 days again in the wilderness, Satan says, you want to eat some bread? Wouldn't it be nice to have some bread? And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. Now the materialist in the world says, no, no, no. Why would you abstain? Why on earth? Fasting, what are you talking about? You should eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow you die. Feed your desires. Seek out pleasure. Live for the moment. You see, self-denial for the world, that makes no sense. But for the believer, the Bible says we are to die to self and to live to Christ. We're not mere animals. We're We're not just slaves to our base instincts. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We can abstain 
There is not one temptation that has seized you that Christ has not provided a way out for you. For. And so when we, when we fast, when we come to the Lord in fasting, we are saying, we are not mastered by these idols, Lord. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Therefore, jumping down to, to 9.27, Paul says, I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, these are sort of negative words in our day and age, aren't they? Discipline, mastery, self-control. But these are the benefits that come through fasting, praying through the Holy Spirit, being sanctified by his work. So what does this look like? Now, the first text here, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. Jesus, if you read it, notice he assumes we will fast. He says, and when you fast, that's not if, but when you fast. He assumes that his disciples will fast, that we will fast as well. Again, in 17, but when you fast, and then he gives three qualifiers. Here's three things. When you are fasting, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, meaning avoid hypocrisy. You're not fasting to be a show. During Jesus' lifetime, it was all a show. Fasting was an opportune time to show your piety, to walk around and say, look how good of a person I am. Look at my spirituality. I am a super Pharisee. And so they would do that. And they would dishevel their faces and they would, you know, dirty themselves up and they would go about this. You know, this is my problem with Lent. Not the fasting part. I like the fasting part. I don't like the forehead ashes. Because I think it just strikes exactly what Jesus is saying. The second part is to wash your face. Jesus says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Meaning look normal. If I saw you out and about, I wouldn't go, man, you look terrible. I know I'm fasting. Oh, Oh, I'm so spiritual. I don't want to know because God knows. And so he says, clean your face. You know, don't be making outward signs for the inward thing that you're doing. This is between you and the Lord, which is the third thing. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, he says the Pharisees already have their reward. What is their reward? Well, men come up to him and go, I'm so thankful to know you. You're such a great, you're so spiritual. You're so wonderful. And they go, yes, I am. Thank you so much. That's their reward. And Jesus says, do you want a, a lasting reward? Then go to the father and do it with him. Pray in secret, fast in secret. He will reward you. And what does he reward you with? His son. He rewards you with a deeper relationship. He rewards you with his grace and his mercy, which are lasting rewards. There's a website that I enjoy. It's called Reformed Worship. And they'll have articles on there. And uh, the late Harvey Smith addressed some of these apprehensions. As Reformed people, he says, we can have apprehensions about fasting. And he writes this. He says, when it comes to fasting, we Reformed Christians seem to live in a tension between guilt if we don't fast And fear of self-righteousness if we do. Between feeling that we lack piety if we don't fast. Or that we're making an ostentation display of piety if we do fast. And given some of the extremes that we kind of talked about around the, the spiritual disciplines. 
I can understand the confusion, right? We, we don't want to be overly ostentatious or overly pious, you know? And then we also don't want to say, you know, well, we're making, you know, I'm, I'm not fasting, so I feel guilty about it, and the Lord will punish me, and all that stuff. So there's error on both sides. Fasting, though, does not make you a super Christian. Fasting does not earn you some sort of special uh, merit badge from God. You know, you get the secret stuff that nobody else is getting. And becoming a monk is not what the Bible is asking you to do. And then you hear me say that and you go, well, why should I fast at all then if it doesn't matter? John Piper wrote a, a little book about it called A Hunger for God. And I've been reading that, going through it. And he delves into this subject and he says this. He says, we fast in order to nourish our own hunger for God and to reduce our hunger for the world. I'm going to say that again. We fast in order to nourish our hunger for God and to reduce our own hunger for the world. And so he says we should fast when our physical appetites become so intense that they would threaten to overcome our hunger and desire for our own Lord. Piper writes, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the mindless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality. We drink in every single night. You see, what he's saying is this is death by a thousand reality shows. This is death by chocolate. This is death by sloth. If you want to shock yourself, pull up your phone and go to your screen time. If you want to really shock yourself, grab your kid's phone and pull up their screen time. And then ask yourself, is this an idol? You see how subtle Satan is? You see how how easy it is to, to take the good gifts God's given us and distort them? You see, he doesn't... Satan is not so intent on getting our names in the news. He wants us distracted and apathetic in the pews. He wants us coming here apathetic because our minds are distracted by what we're going to eat for lunch. Our minds are distracted by the thing we read on Facebook earlier this morning. Our minds are distracted by these idols, these appetites, which we have abused. And if you don't believe me, in the parable of the great banquet... Luke 14, Jesus tells this parable about this great wedding banquet. And they're inviting everybody. Come on in. Come to the feast. And and the thing he does not mention about keeping people out of the kingdom of God. He doesn't mention Satan. He doesn't mention the usual suspects. What does Jesus say? The first person, I can't come. I bought a new plot of land. The second person, I have all these yokes of oxen. And I got to work them. I wish I could come. And the third person, well, I just got married. And I can't come. I gotta, I'm with my wife. You see, he, he's talking about good things, isn't he? And it's the good things. There's, there's a soil that chokes the seed with the pleasures of this world. And there's a disciple named Demas who leaves Paul for the pleasures of this world. It's good things. Piper, again, the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but often his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are for the simple pleasures of this earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. You see, that's dangerous. 
And these desires can be good in themselves, but because of our sin, we always have to be so self-conscious and so self-aware of how, how weak we are. And fasting does this. Fasting is waging war against the endless stream of the appetites of the world. We are saying, the Lord is enough. The Lord is my portion. I long for Christ to return. This world cannot satisfy me, and I'm showing it to myself, and I'm showing it to the Lord. I will not be mastered by sin. Pastor Donald Whitney says, Fasting expresses, in a God-ordained way, our belief that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Psalms 34.8 He's so good that there are times we are satisfied to feast on him instead of the food that the Lord made for us to live on. Fasting is a temporary physical demonstration that we believe the truth declared by the gospel that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Second text, Matthew 9. This is arguably one of the most important texts on fasting. Because it helps answer a lot of these questions we've been bringing up. The disciples of John come to Jesus. They say, we fast, the Pharisees fast. Why do you not fast? And Jesus replies with this really interesting thing. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. You see, under the old covenant, fasting was only commanded one day out of the year. Only one day. It was the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so it was an occasional thing that the Jewish people would fast. It was for the Day of Atonement that you would fast and pray and remember. But the Pharisees had started adding extra rules. This is what they would do. And so they started fasting on Monday and Thursday. Every single week, Monday and Thursday, they would fast. They would doll themselves up. And it was just legalism to the extreme. So much so that when the, the disciples, the, the you know, early disciples, they'd written this book called the Didache. And the Didache was an early Christian manual. And it says, when you fast, do it on Tuesdays and Fridays. <laughs> just, just so you're not lumped in with those guys. I mean, that's how bad it was. So I want to be clear. Fasting in the New Covenant is not strictly commanded by God. Some people think it is. I don't think it is. I think it's encouraged. Just like every other spiritual discipline, but we should not expect anything from God uh, that he owes us anything. He doesn't owe us anything based on our own piety. On the contrary, fasting is an act of humility. We are acknowledging our need to subdue our appetites. We're going to the Lord saying, we're not pious. It's actually the opposite case. We're so weak that we are fasting. We are in so much need of you that I'm coming to you now developing this habit. Christ alone can destroy the power of reigning sin in your life. He alone can do it. He's promised the Holy Spirit will do it. And so we go to the Lord and ask him for his help. Uh, In answering the question of John's disciples, Jesus is saying this in effect. He's saying every fast up to this point, every bit of longing was pointing to me. His disciples have no reason to mourn because I'm with them right now. But one day I will not be with them, and then they will have to fast and mourn and pray. And that's where we live. That's where we live. We live in the interim where the bridegroom is away. 
And so there remains a place for fasting. And if we do fast, it must not be like the hypocrites. We cannot pour the new wine into the old wineskins. We cannot make a patchwork Christianity of works and grace. It's all grace. The finished work of Christ is our motivation behind all our fasting. As we close here, I want to to really quickly just talk about emptying ourselves to be filled. And these are just practical advice. Practical advice so that maybe you might be encouraged and say, maybe once a month I'm going to start this. I'm going to try it out. And it doesn't have to be food. Some people cannot do that because of health issues. I get that. But what else could you take away for a day, for a week, in order to serve the Lord? Fasting should be regular. It should be filled with prayer. It should be done in secret. And it should be done with humility. There's also a place for corporate fasting. In the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, 21.5, it says that there should be appropriate times for solemn fastings. Where we as a body of believers come together and we say, I think we should fast because of what's going on in America. I think we should fast due to what's going on in the church. John Calvin says we should corporately fast whenever religious controversies arise, whenever a minister is to be chosen, whenever any matter of difficulty or great importance is under consideration. And he says on the, on the flip side, whenever we are suffering under great punishment from the Lord, we should fast. Whenever we are being uh, under manifestations of pestilence or famine or war, we should fast. He says it is good for pastors to, to exhort the people to public fasting and extraordinary prayer. Well, I think it's good too. And so I'm going to encourage this church, this body of believers, that as we rebuild, as we search for a new pastor, would you, would you pray and fast? Would you pray and fast for that? Would you, would you consider doing that? Speak with the Lord. Talk to your kids about it. Talk to your wife about it. Think about it. What can you fast from? But let the fasting have a clear purpose. That's the second point. Let the fasting have a reason. Okay? When your stomach rumbles and you go, why am I hungry? Oh, that's, that's right. I'm fasting because this person is sick. And Lord, would you be with them? I'm fasting because we're at war with Ukraine right now, basically. Ukraine and Russia. Would you be with that? What's going on with the slaughter that's happening and the people who are dying? Would you be with abortions in the world? Would you be with these things that are on my heart, Lord? Would you, would you break me? Would you empty me that you might fill me with your love for your own people? And so I encourage you to fast. But have a purpose. Have a reason. It also involves afflicting the body, humbling the soul, which is probably why we tend to avoid it. Fasting is not pleasant. It's called discipline for a reason. And the second you start fasting, guess what's going to happen? A call is going to come on your phone. Hey, guess what? We're going out tonight. And I'm paying. You know, and that's how you'll be tempted. And you say, well, food's not my thing, but, you know, I'll fast from entertainment. (sighs) Honey, the Netflix show we love started dropping, you know. We can't. The the movie. (laughs) And this is how, this is... It's a stark reminder how weak we are. It's a wound. It opens a wound. And whatever that idol is, whatever that, that, whatever that, that deception is in your life, whatever it is that Satan wants to keep you from seeing, that will be exposed. It's about self-control. Learning to say no as a believer is one of the most powerful things you can do. Saying no. No. Sanctification is one aspect of our life which overflows into every other aspect of our life. 
And so as the Lord sanctifies us in one area, as we put to death one sin, it will affect every other area of our life. We mortify the flesh. Fasting creates within us a spiritual seriousness as well. It calls us to grab hold of something visible and take hold of something spiritual at the same time. And we put those two together. I'm going to end by asking this question. Do you, do you love God or do you love his good gifts? Do you long for Christ's return or does the thought of leaving this world with all its pleasures, does that terrify you? You see, fasting will press against that wound. And if gluttony is your sin, that will be made clear. If sensuality, bitterness, jealousy, strife, if those are your idols, going cold turkey will hurt. It will be uncomfortable. But Christ says, I will be your all in all. Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Listen to this. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. You see, that's the primary purpose of fasting. Because you long for his appearing. You love his appearing. Is that the desire of your heart? Do you long for his appearing? Oh, won't that be a day? The Bible ends with Jesus promising, yes, I'm coming soon. And the church responds and says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We're longing for that day. And Lord, I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray for it. I'm going to say, Lord, come soon because I want you more than anything this world can afford. What's your relationship with food like? What's your sin of choice? What idols do you worship? What good gift have you abused? Where do you need self-control? Go to the Lord and ask him. Ask him. Teach us to pray. Lord, teach me to fast. Long for his appearing. Mourn over the state of the world and cling to Christ. And as I say every single week, if you don't know him, oh, you're missing out. You cannot fill, you cannot fill your heart with only what he can give you. Only Jesus can, can fill your emptiness. And your heart will be restless until it rests in him. Let's pray now.